Hi there, folks, and welcome to NTI Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Zivna Kojima McGinn. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you're having a great day or night, wherever in the world you might be. A bit of relief from the blazing summer sun and humidity here in Fukuoka, at least. And by that, I mean temperatures have gone down from 34, 35 degrees Celsius to about 30, 32. But hey, beggars can't be choosers, I suppose. I'll take it. So for today's episode, we've got a conversation with a new client or a soon-to-be client, to be exact, who's in the market for a city holiday property or a home away from home sort of thing. He is looking specifically at Tokyo, but the talk we had touches on issues that are relevant for um, holiday properties anywhere in Japan. So things like prices and sizes, um, age of buildings, their maintenance, and the effect that this has on ownership and depreciation, um, how we conduct due diligence, how to have a local Japanese representative if you're a non-resident, and so on and so forth. So a lot of the stuff we regularly discuss here on the podcast, but this time from the perspective of someone purchasing a holiday home as opposed to an investment property. So the criteria and issues affecting the buyer can uh, and are can be and are quite different on many fronts. So for anyone in a similar situation, this should be quite interesting. And even for those among you living in Japan or moving to Japan or are currently hunting for a place to call home here, there uh, should be plenty of relevant stuff in there as well. So I hope you enjoy our chat. I certainly did. And I shall see you again on the other side. So, okay, so go for it. So you're based in uh, Dubai, you said, right? Where are you originally from? I'm Canadian from Toronto. Okay. Um, been living in Dubai for a while now. Yeah. Uh, about 17 years. 17 uh, years, wow. <laughs> yeah, more, more than a lot, but some people, you know, it's, you know, if you find a good uh, job, or in my case, my spouse finds a good job, um, living here is pretty easy and living tax-free is uh, comes with its, its own benefit. Right. So, so you're you're a you're a trophy husband, are you? <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean we we actually we we left Canada in 2000. Uh, we first moved to Tokyo, um, and we were there for a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, that was our first time as expats. Uh, we were only there for two years, and we just enjoyed expat life, so we um, uh, looked for other opportunities and happened to be Dubai, and then we moved to, down the road to Abu Dhabi for uh, a year, and then came back to Dubai, and we've been here since. Right. Um, yeah. So, okay. Our, our and how long did you live in Tokyo? Two years. A little two. over two years. Okay. And you obviously uh, liked it enough to be interested in uh, living there again. Yeah, we sort of realized it's kind of our happy place. Uh, we have, I mean, probably influenced by it was the the fact that it was the first place that it was uh, that we were expats and we really enjoyed it and uh, um, and we try to get back there at least a couple of times a year. Yeah. Um, yeah, and. Uh, I mean, when we were a little younger, we would sort of clash at a Japanese friend's place, but as you know, they're quite small uh, apartments, and at, at some point, uh, we had a, a close <clears throat> friend, actually, from Dubai, who moved there and had a big house in central Tokyo and a guest bedroom, and he lived there for eight years, and we used to stay with him, and then when he left, uh, about three, four years ago, 
we Airbnbs were still a thing there, or a real easy thing there, and we found a nice place, and we thought that was going to be our way, and then that sort of ended, um, and uh, then we started to think, well, I mean, for other various reasons, which I can explain if you like, uh, we thought maybe we should think about a holiday home there, because that's where we like to go, and um, we've also been thinking about uh, um, retirement, I'm in my 50s, um, and again, <laughs> we like the expat life, we see no urgency or reason to immediately just to run back to Canada, we thought, let's enjoy retirement and live sort of as expats in retirement. And, so uh, your spouse is also Canadian, is she? Yeah, yep. yeah, we're both Canadians, right? Uh, both Toronto. Um, and the first thought was, or one of them, I mean, we th we've thought about where we should retire for for a while now, and uh, one of the thoughts was obviously Japan. But you know, just a quick cursory look into it, you realize that it's not really possible to retire in Japan without uh, you know being a resident or married to someone Japanese. Or, yeah, I mean, you can you can set up a business that's low maintenance and not hands-on. That'll get you a business visa or investor visa. Um, yeah. But there there are hoops to jump through. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, is yeah, the investor visa is something we did consider, but uh, I don't know. Do you know are there agencies that sort of help you with things or that could explore opportunities, yeah. ways to do that sort of thing? Yeah. Uh, there's immigration lawyers. So you run your business ideas by them and they let you know what the criteria is, whether it satisfies it or not, and they help you with applications. They're not going to help you set up and run the business now. So, right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, yeah, so we, we thought we actually looked at properties in, you know, in London and Berlin where I, I mean, I have some, uh, my heritage is German. I thought that uh, was the case, yeah. <laughs> Um, New York, where we have a lot of friends, and even Lisbon, because they have a golden visa policy or program in, in, in Portugal. But for all various different reasons, they're all sort of crossed off the list, at least. For the, there's still possibilities for after we retire, yeah. but not for now. And uh, Dubai is a little restrictive and risky place to buy property, and we never had the feeling that we wanted to have anything permanent here, like we still rent here. We don't actually own anything, any property anywhere in the world, and that's one of the reasons why let's have somewhere, some place that we can call home. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we keep our mind keeps going back, maybe something in Tokyo. And I realized that uh, you know it wouldn't be an investment. Um, it would be it's something we would probably or definitely lose money on if we're not renting it out, you know, monthly expenses, even the, the way, you know, like house prices in most of the world are going crazy right now, but in Japan, as always, they stay stable or are going down. So I realize that it's not a capital investment either. Well, um, I mean, that, that's generally true, but I mean, the last five, six years has seen Tokyo and Osaka, at least, very close to where they were pre-90s. Um, but you're right in that it's anyone's guess whether it's going to continue or not. Yeah. Yeah. And also we thought, uh, I mean, because we've been here for so long, all of our friends and family, uh, 
have been to Dubai in some cases multiple times, mm. and uh, the, the visitors visitor numbers are, have been decreasing significantly over the years because there's not that much to do here in Dubai. Um, although it's touted as a tourist destination, it's, yeah. it's not that much. Um, and uh, yeah, we just thought if we get some, you know, had a little place somewhere, we encourage people to come and visit again and a place in Tokyo would be, you know, exciting for people. That's definitely that, yeah. yeah. Come and visit again and, you know, we could meet there for holidays and, you know, maybe even go fly out there more often than we currently do. So, so you're often. talking about a pure holiday home, maybe renting out by the month when you're not there kind of thing? Yeah, basically. Pure, pure holiday home. Um, that would be for us and, you know, if a close family or friend said, hey, can we, you know, go out there, can we use your place, that would be on the cards. Uh, okay, so we're, yeah. not, we're not talking about letting strangers rent it out by the month when you're not there, just ones referred by I, you kind of thing. At the moment, Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't want to make that the goal or the primary objective or anything like that. That might be something we would explore afterwards. Well, as long as you're just aware of the fact, like that sample that you sent to me and others would be similar, that um, you're looking at at least 200 sometimes $300 in monthly building fees, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, um, I mean, it's probably cheaper than renting, a, than uh, uh, buying into a hotel here for a couple of months a year, but it is still a, a fair amount of expenses. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, we've done well for ourselves. We've been saving well for 17 years, and uh, it just feels that it would be nice to have a place to call our own somewhere yep. in the world, but somewhere where we love to be. So. Okay, so how can we help? Um, yeah, I, well, I have, uh, I mean, a couple of questions just about the, the way property purchase works and the way property property works in, yeah. in Japan. Um, and uh, I guess the first thing, I, I have a couple of questions about NTI services. Yep. Uh, so I, I realize it's not your core business. I mean, you, you're, you're, in, you know, you're, an you deal with investors who want to buy property to, to rent out and earn yeah, I mean it's it's not a core it's not a core business, but we definitely have helped and still help people with holiday homes, um, land parcels that you know might be used for future development. Um, so we've definitely, um, I'd say maybe ten percent of the business that we do um, is non-investment related. So we we do definitely do that. The thing is with holiday homes and places that people buy to live is that they usually want to um, visit them in person. Um, so we can help them by uh, organizing visits and tours and so forth. But with Corona, a lot of them have actually been purchasing sight unseen just because they can't come here. Um, so that's um, recently we have been doing more of that just because people can't physically attend in person. Yeah. So the process is, um, if you're walking through us, the process is that we would um, require you to fill in and have witnessed a limited power of attorney document, which enables us to represent you here in Japan. 
And then with that document, we can then contact sellers and realtors and we can represent you in meetings and sign documents on your behalf and make decisions on your behalf, collect, um, collect income in case of investment properties, pay expenses in all other cases. Um, so that, that's definitely doable. And the Hanko is not necessary if you're residing overseas. They're aware of the fact that foreigners don't have Hankos. Um, so all you need to do is um, same as you do in any other country. You have your signature witnessed by another republic or something similar. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, now, if I don't know how it's going to pan out, but I mean, as you can see from the uh, the listing I sent you, I do sort of I get I uh, signed up for you know new like property newsletters from a few different. Uh, uh, real estate agencies in Tokyo just to sort of inform myself and get an idea of prices and things. Yep. But if I did find something on my own, um, is that is it something that your your organization would do to represent me after I found my own place? Yes, of course. We're not um, we're not realtors or agents, so we we have yeah. no vested interest in any particular properties over others. Um, right. Being buyers agents, we would. Um, probably advise, like in that listing that you sent to me, I can already advise not to go for anything as old as that. Okay. Um, not, not so much for the building um, not being, I mean, the buildings will probably be still renovated for a good few years, but the thing is that um, developers tend to hone in and move in on properties that are over a certain age, and then once they do that, if the owners of the individual units are not too savvy, which is usually the case, then they're going to be um, just try, running some scare tactics to try to convince them to um, sell at a hugely discounted price uh -huh. and just telling them that the building is going to be torn down soon and that they'll never get their money back and that they better sell it as soon as they can and which is obviously not the case but people do tend to buy into that right. and then once they get 80% approval um, then you're sort of forced to sell I mean you can hold on to the property but the developer will eventually cease providing utilities so without power without water there's nothing you can do and then you will be forced to sell anyway wow. okay. um, yeah so we would probably advise against anything that's um, over 40 years old at the time of purchase if possible okay. and just to give yourself at least a decade or so before that sort of thing happens It's not a horror story in the sense that, you know, people usually would have had a good few years of income or a good few years of rent savings before it happens. So it's not like people are going broke because of it. Um, but it does happen fairly often and it happens a lot more with smaller buildings that the developers find easy to demolish and remove and where there's less owners to compensate. So they wouldn't do that if it's a huge... 200 unit cash cow in a super central location then you know no one's interested in selling but if it's something that's smaller and a bit more suburban and makes it easier for them to do it that's all in that sort of regard that respect i have read about especially because i mean when you start looking at the property you hear about the sort of that buildings last 30 years or 40 years or whatever it is. And obviously there are some condominium buildings that are older than that. And then you start to see a couple of articles, or I found a couple of articles where the the ownership 
comes together and they decide amongst themselves to tear the building down and rebuild it and often rebuild it uh, to, to in order to cover the costs of rebuilding it, they you know have more units than it used to have, so that they sell some of the new units, and everyone ends up with a a new uh, a new condo, and the expenses aren't too high because they've sold some extra units. Um, but then you sort of start to see that it's happened like you know two or three times. Yeah, it's not that and, common. And, I mean, and not, it's going to actually happen very much at all. But it, I know that it has happened. So. You see that sort of. That? We we haven't seen that one in person. So so the hostile takeovers we have seen a few times, not too often, but they do happen. That sort of thing we haven't seen happen. And I mean, you've lived here, so you you probably at least a bit familiar with the Japanese psyche as a rule. Um, they don't tend to like changes too much, especially the older generation. So to get them to buy into such a creative project unless they're really seasoned investors is going to be a bit of a, a bit of a challenge. Uh, so while, while I'm sure it does happen, we, we haven't run across it and I wouldn't count on that happening in any way. Okay. Um, and also yeah. they've just, um, first off that, that lifespan that you mentioned is not an actual um, practical lifespan. It's just for tax depreciation purposes. So the reinforced concrete blocks have an official lifespan of 47 years. But like you said, they do, like the building that you saw, they do tend to stick around a lot longer than that. Um, you're just not going to be able to claim any more depreciation on them past that point. And the government has been pushing for some legislation that will extend that. So that might, um, that might be resolved in a few years. But practically, again, the bigger and more cash yielding the building is the more likely it is to keep getting renovated till kingdom come kind of thing and so how, can I ask how do those hostile takeovers uh, at least what are the initial phases of, of that sort of thing I mean it, it, the a con, condos are individually owned uh, by the, the the owners of the condo yeah. so how does someone come in and take that over well, there's a few ways they do it. First off, they um, they contact the uh, representative. There's always a nominated one of the owners is a nominated uh, nominated representative of the owners co-op. So right. they contact them, and they unfortunately often sort of um, I wouldn't say bribe, but they make it uh, they make the relationship positive for them. So they you know they send in a few gifts and they take them out on a few dinners and that sort of thing, just to get the. Um, just to get the chairman on their side. And then they start sending letters to individual owners um, mentioning that they're doing them a favor by offering them such and such price because pretty soon it's not going to be feasible. And then if they can't get what they need that way, mm -hmm. what they do is they purchase um, as many units as they can at reasonable prices. So they just go through normal sales and they buy a few of those units from the owners and that gives them a place on the owner's co-op and gives them voting rights, one voting right per unit, um, which, of course, then also helps them to uh, tip the scales in their favor when there's a big decision to be made, like selling the entire building. And they're pretty patient with it. So they like one building that we've just um, finally, um, one building that we, we have three customers with properties in that particular building. Um, and the developers started their campaign about four or five years ago, and they've only come to fruition about now. So they're not in a rush. They take their time, and they kept buying one unit after the other, and now they've got five or six voting rights out of the 50 or so, and that already gives them 10% right there. All right. 
Um, and the other uh, thing is that I've just read that the, um, in about two years' time, the government is actually concerned about some of these old um, blocks being um, neglected and not being managed properly and becoming, um, well, firstly an eyesore, but also a danger. And they're actually um, thinking about giving certain, they're going to put through new legislation that will uh, force, th there's going to be forced checks on the performance of the uh, management co-op. And they're going to give a sort of a governmental stamp of approval for buildings that are being managed properly. And the buildings that are not being managed properly, there's going to be some legislation in place to force the owners to renovate and force them to pay for a proper building management company to come in and look at it and do what needs to be done. So that's not going to be, I mean, it's, it's a good thing. I don't think it's, it's not bad legislation, but it does mean that these older buildings are probably going to be ju jumping up in expenses quite um, quite sharply once they reach that stage. Right. And that was also pegged as 40 years old and over. Okay. So, the, I mean, the, there's a bunch of reasons due to which I would probably advise to look at something that's maybe 30, 35 rather than 40 and over. Right. Well, I, I, it's just, when you look at the... And I, one of my main questions was uh, depreciation. And obviously, I mean, uh, like... When I lived, uh, the last house that I owned, um, I mean, it was a hundred-year-old house. I live in an apartment now, but I, it was a hundred-year-old house, and it was was not significantly cheaper than uh, than newer houses in, in the same in the same neighborhood. But obviously, that's very different in in Japan. But, well, building uh, building materials are quite different, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean. Construction methods and whatever. I mean, there's lots of differences, but my understanding in at least in Tokyo where I've done My research is you know property prices tend to go up a little bit But the building itself when it's brand new it depreciates quite quickly. Yes um, it's, it's the land so that I, retains value. If I'm looking at one particular part of town and there's like a con uh, a building that's just been built and one that is like 30 years old even if I mean, it's almost impossible to get exact like for like, but if they're, you know, roughly the same neighborhood, roughly the same floor size, the new one's going to be significantly more expensive. Correct. So obviously there's a, a curve of depreciation um, that, that, that gets closer and closer to the value of the land itself. And I was wondering if there was any sort of, anyone that's ever done a study or for the government, if there's like an a graph or a way to calculate uh, what that depreciation would be and if if it's possible to find sort of a sweet spot where the building's not too old but most of the depreciation is gone from the the building structure itself and um, there is there is an, an yeah there is an, an accountant can run you through that so i can put you in touch with uh, an accountant that a lot of our customers use and he can explain there's two ways in which you can claim depreciation two different tables and they sort of use the more beneficial one tax wise depending on the customer and the property and the location but um the main thing to remember is that the, all of those calculations are only um true as far as the official eval goes right and market price can be can have nothing to do with the official eval in many cases. And with that, it the age of the property plays an even bigger role for market price just because 90% of the uh, buyers are Japanese and the Japanese really like new everything to be as new as possible. 
So yeah. there's no value here like there is in other countries on anything that's um, architecturally, traditionally beautiful versus brand new or, um, you know, a piece of history it just doesn't play here unless you're buying, um, you know, an old house as opposed to a, a unit, a condo unit. Um, in those cases, there might be some value in it. But again, I mean, most people would be looking to demolish and rebuild rather than preserve anything old. So there's not really any market value in that. Right. So does at some point the, the, um, the price of... Uh, at, I mean, you hear about these old buildings that are basically worthless. Um, so I'm just wondering, does that depreciation curve go down and flatten out at the land value line and then sort of flattens out? And uh, is there a point where at a certain age, like something that's like 60, almost 60 years old, like that, that uh, unit in, uh, that was built in 1962, um, is most of the price for that the land value? associated with the parcel of land that is uh, sorry, associated with that, that condo? Or um, well, I mean, the building, the building fully depreciates at 47 years old. So beyond that, it's really only the uh, land value that plays any part in that. And then depending on the property, I mean, properties that are primarily investment properties, which is not, not the one that you sent to me. The one that you sent to me is mainly going to be an owner-occupier property. Um, but the smaller, older sort of um, the, the types of studio or one bedrooms that the people who buy would not want to live in and the people who live in would not afford to buy kind of thing. So those are clearly investment properties. And then the pricing changes because they're priced um, primarily on the rental income that they can generate. So in those cases, you might see a building... Um, that's officially officially completely depreciated, but it's still gaining it's still gaining in price just because the location is attractive and people still want to live there and pay the rent. Um, so we've seen places in um, both Tokyo and Fukuoka where we live. We've seen places that were purchased, and this is again something that's already fully depreciated. So that's doubled in price whenever the city was doing well in the five or six years that Fukuoka shut up. Um, those particular units doubled in price, even though they're actually getting older and they have depreciated. Um, so I would probably say on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, but in your case, you're looking at a fully owner-occupier-style properties. It's not usually going to be purchased as an investment. Um, in those cases, when it depreciates, you've only really got the land at that point. Plus, owners, occupiers would also much rather live in new properties, so you lose value a bit more quickly if you can't actually rent it out. Right. Mm. So I, I mean, my, my mentality is I feel that I'm quite sensitive to the price, the significant price drop or depreciation of a new building. I, I feel it would not be a good thing for me to buy something very new. First of all, because I'm not Japanese and I don't mind if something is not brand new. Yeah. Uh, to generalize. <laughs> um, but, you know, since I'm not, it's not going to be investment property, it's not going to earn money for me. Yeah. It can only lose money for me in this sort of a market where right. prices aren't going through the roof like they are in some other parts of the world. And so, I don't want to buy something at the 
you know, when it's brand new and it's going to just immediately plummet in price just because it's getting older. I'd rather get something that is where the price is sort of leveling out. And uh, is that, you know, is that after 10 years, after 20 years? 20, I'd say year? about 20 years. We see the best value in properties that are um, hitting about 20, 25 years. Okay. In most cases, that's when they're really considered them. Um, officially second-hand properties, which means that their uh, market price drops down significantly, um, but they're still very well maintainable and renovatable. So that's usually wh where we get the most value. And that, that's the same for investment and owner-occupied properties. Okay. Is, is there some sort of way, some government website or something where you... Is it, is it possible to... Because one of the things that I thought of to figure out the the balance between the building value and the land value is if I could figure out the, the value of the land parcel associated with a particular condo, then the rest of it, the rest, if I knew the price of the land, then I would know that the rest of that, the price is building price, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So is, we is can... it a way to calculate the value of the land or to, obviously not to know for sure because of these things fluctuate, but to estimate yeah, we can get the official eval um, as of the last property tax statement. So whenever we're conducting due diligence on any particular property, one of the documents that the seller needs to provide is the last official evaluation and property tax statement. And there you'll have the official eval, which, again, can differ from market price depending on when they last updated those. Um, but it'll give you a rough idea of where you stand, at least. Yeah, but that would be sort of after I've decided on... on uh on the target or decided to get serious about purchasing. I'm just, just to looking at lots of properties, trying to evaluate, trying to figure out it or be comfortable with the price that's being asked for and wondering if it's, you know, if it's a little too expensive for that, or that's actually a good deal because, you know, I know what the land is, is worth. Um, the thing is, tries to do. Yeah, the thing is, you don't really know what the land is worth. You just know what the government says the land is worth kind of thing, which is, again, can be very different to what the market will actually offer for it. And so, I mean, we can definitely ask listing realtors to provide some uh, comps, some comparable data of different properties and um, the prices that they sold for over the last five, six years. Um, and some of them, particularly the ones that we've worked with on a few deals already, will do that happily. But um, others, like if you like a particular property that's being uh, advertised for sale by an agent that we've never worked with, they're probably not going to give us the time of day before they have an offer on the table. Sure. Um, so we can try and we can, we can go off some listings that interest you and then ask um, not that listing realtor, but one of our partner realtors that we've worked with in the past just to see if they can give us some info on that one. Um, so we, we can definitely do that, but it's just that it's a very fast-paced market. So by the time we get that info, there might already be an offer on the property, that's all. No, I, I think if I were, I've already decided on a property at that point, it's not as relevant. I was just wondering if, if people use ever, if there's a way to find that out, first of all, and if it's, if it's something that people use just in evaluating, it's like whether something is a reasonably good price or not. There are some websites. There are some websites where you punch in an address and name of property, and they'll give you um, average uh, past 
sale prices for that particular building, if they have it. Not all of them have that info. Um, if nothing has been sold in that particular building in the last five or six years, then you're not going to have anything. But if there is, then there are websites that will bring that up. Yeah. All right. Um, going back to older buildings, um, because obviously I keep getting pulled into the older buildings, at least looking at them uh, on the listings, because the prices are much better for you yeah. know, the size and, and the neighborhoods that I want. And so you start to see things about that they've had seismic retrofits, um, and uh, and I was wondering if these so-called seismic retrofits can bring older buildings up to current standards, or is it just a you know some temporary measure or something that they do for insurance, or you know what do you have views on seismic retrofits or yeah it's um like conforming to earth resistant standards or seismic that they have seismic resistance certificates no that's a real thing uh, that's a real thing um the reason i mean post 80 that brings some an older building up to post 81 or correct. is it all it's just it's a bit better than it used to be it's the best that you can do without rebuilding it um it's probably not as good as if uh, it was being built to the latest standards but it's pretty darn close i mean the reason that they need to do this for insurance purposes is because um, the general convention is that that's what needs to be done for older buildings and to bring them up to speed. So, yes, I mean, that's a, it's a real thing and it is done and it's part of the due diligence processes. We'd like to see that has been done. All right. Um, okay. Uh, do you, and speaking of seismic issues, uh, do you have any, is there, is it, a consideration like a high rise versus low like a low rise building from 1978 versus a high rise building from the early 80s 82 let's say um would would you still think that the 1981 or feel that the 1981 is more earthquake resistant was it a huge change in 1981 the earthquake resistance standards was it like a real dividing line or was it a slow no, no, it was a very sharp. It was a very sharp divide, and there, it's actually a lot harder to sell those older ones for that reason. So, it's definitely um, again, it's a real thing. So, I would, I mean, look again, it's a case by case uh, thing because we often see, we often see older buildings that have been seismic retrofitted and have been properly managed and properly renovated. And we do see younger buildings where the building management company just didn't do its job properly and the building is neglected. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I'd say it's a rule of thumb, but we need to review it on a case-by-case -case basis. But all things being equal, if the building is well-maintained, then yes, I would go for the newer one. Okay. Um, going back, you were talking about the company, uh, building management and how the government is talking about uh, sort of investigating and giving seals of approval to well-managed buildings. Yeah. Um, I did want to add, because uh, I've seen some listings where, or most listings seem to indicate that a condo building is managed by a company, but every once in a while you see that it's managed by the owner's association. Self-management, yeah. Yeah, is there a positives, negatives to either of those? I assume one is a little bit cheaper, but I don't know if it's always a good thing. Um, not necessarily cheaper. It's um, we would usually prefer to go for the management companies if possible, just because they tend to know what they're doing better than just a bunch of owners. 
Um, and sometimes with the self-managed buildings, there are some cases in which you don't actually pay building fees by the month or at least not full building fees. And then they just hit each of the owners up whenever there's a big job that needs to be done. They hit you up for a one-time payment. Um, so that sort of removes the uh, stability that we like to feel when we are purchasing into condos. Um, so if at all possible, we'd prefer to go for the managed buildings. But we have had some cases where the, um, the owner's co-op was doing a pretty good job, usually because one of the members is a developer themselves. Um, so again, case by case, but... Again, all things being equal, I'd probably go for the management company if possible. Right. Um, okay. Having said that, some of them do a bad job and have to be replaced. That's sometimes a thing as well. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, speaking of management, uh, is there a... How, I, I assume this is something that, uh, that your organization would take care of if uh, you represented me, but... Uh, how how does one determine whether the uh, the cash reserve for building repairs is, is is a good amount or not a good amount? I, I know it will fluctuate depending on how recently they've done repairs or how soon they're going to do repairs. Yeah. But, uh, how do you decide whether that's good or not? So we correlate that, like you said, we correlate the amount that they've got in their reserve funds with the renovation history. And we know that every, depending on the age of the building, between 10 and 15 years, there are a few major innovations that need to be done. And so for younger buildings, it's every, well, it starts off with every 20 years. So you're not going to do much until the building is 20 years old. Then it becomes every 15 years. Then when they hit 30, it becomes every 10 years kind of thing. And then you, um, you want to make sure that the exterior and the roof um, and maybe the elevators in case of buildings that have elevators. You want to make sure that these things were done in the last 10 or 15 years. And if they haven't been done, but they've, you know, they got pr plenty of reserve funds uh, to use when they do need it done, then that's okay. And if they have been done and the reserve fund pool is depleted as a result of that, and that was done five, six years ago, that's also okay. Um, but if both are not there, then that's probably a red light for us. So we would recommend not to go ahead with that deal. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Let's uh, a question about um, moving forward, making a deal happen. Um, how? How? Um, I, I know that I, I, I used to have a, uh, a bank account in Japan when I lived there for a short time, yeah. but uh, I no longer do, and I know that as a non-resident. I don't think I can open a bank account there. So how do I get my purchase funds into Japan? Because, I mean, normally there would be like escrow accounts or lawyers' trust accounts that hold money until there's a closing, but that doesn't seem to be the system in Japan. So no, but that's, how... that's why we exist. So once we have authority to represent you, then we then act as your official Japanese bank account and... We can hold funds for you. Um, if the rates are attractive, for example, and you're not even sure what you're purchasing yet, but you know that the rates are now peaking in your favor, then you can treat us as your bank account and just send funds over to be held until purchase. And then we make all the payments on your behalf and uh, the rest is just yours. You tell us when to remit it back to you. Okay. Yeah. That's all right. A, um, 
And we'll put you in touch with some customers that we've been serving for a good few years so you know that your uh, funds are in safe hands. Um, all right. Um, and then, so post-purchase, uh, again, not being a resident, not having a, you know, the, I used to call it the Gaijin card. I don't know what yeah. it's actually called. Zairio. Um, <laughs> exactly. That's it. Um, I've been, I've read that I, I won't even be able to set up my own utilities if I have a place. Like I won't Correct. be able to... And insurance, and insurance, and building fee payments every month, and all of that. Yeah. So is that, you know, not not needing, you know, full on, whatever the term is, property management, where I have to have a management company, or I would like a management company to take care of tenants. I this would just be for me. So I, do you have like sort of simple. Management packages where you yep. could just take you take care of utilities and yep, that's us again. Yeah. So we is that, a, is that a major monthly or yearly expense or how, how does what are the sort of well in cases what? in cases where we're managing a tenanted property we charge like the property managers do a percentage of the rent and in cases where we're just managing a property that's not being leased we just charge for one hour of work per month and then we do all of that for you. So uh, our our labor is uh, three thousand yen. It's two thousand eight hundred plus tax. So it works out to be about three thousand yen per month. Okay. And for that, we take care of everything except the tax. If you want us to also pay your property taxes, that's another one hour once a year. Okay. Um, initially, to get you know the different utility accounts going, you know whether it's telephone, internet. That's all part of the settlement. That, that's all part of the settlement process. So if you pay us to facilitate the purchase on your behalf, we're going to put all of that in place as part of that. Okay. Yeah. That's good. And then it's just paying the bills, yep. basically. Which is, so we'll do that on a monthly basis for that one hour a month. All right. And do you keep, uh, do you tell me, would you tell me what, what I need to send you every month or would you want need to keep a balance with you or how would that work? We'll need to have six months ahead of all payments. So we can pretty much estimate what the uh, building fees are. That's a given. Yep. And then the uh, water and power, if you're not using them, I think the minimum to keep the line alive is a thousand yen a month for the electricity. The water is not even that, I think. And some of the buildings will also, um, because they don't have individual meters, the water might be a communal fee that's including the building fees. And so we estimate the monthly expense and we'll need to always have six months ahead. Of, of the, the of everything that we need to pay on your bill, <laughs> plus your uh, your your fees. Correct. Got. It. All right. Um, and then uh, I guess I mean if if I if I did I think I'm, I can't remember how I mentioned this I asked this exactly before but uh, if I did find a place online that looked really good. Could I bring? Is it? I can bring you in at that point and say I found this property. Can you help me move forward with it? Yes, of course. Because yeah. I, I was wondering if there was a stage where it would be best to bring you in, or if there's a stage where you're like, 
no, this has already gone too far. We're not interested or it's not worth our time. No, no, we're, we're happy to do anything. Um, our purchase fee, our purchase fee is, um, is depending on the budget or the purchase price. So whatever you think you're going to be purchasing, you tell us what the budget is. And then if you want us to, if you want us to start researching and providing potential properties and conduct due diligence on them and so forth, then we need that uh, purchase fee estimate paid in advance. Um, but if you don't want us to do any of that and you just want to start researching on your own, then whenever you're happy for us to start working, that's when you pay us. So it's entirely up to you. Okay. Um, I, I mean, are, to put it bluntly, are the fees the same? Like, would, I be, exactly would the same. it be in my best interest to bring you in early because it's going to cost me the same? Or uh, um, is, is it, and I don't know if it's it just most, the more complicated stuff is, after we sort of put a purchase in motion? Well, we most, most of the work is on the uh, due diligence and negotiation, contacting realtors and organizing the sale itself with all the documents that are related to it and for us to review all of the official documents. Um, right. And for that reason, I mean, we're happy to put in a couple of hours of free research just to give you a few samples that we can find from our um, realtors that we worked with in the past or from online listings. And that's not the major part of our job, so there's not going to be a huge difference. We do have another scheme uh, in which we charge by the hour. Um, and just if you know, if you just ask us, well, can you look at this property and this property and this property, and then can you facilitate the sale on this one based on your recommendations? But if you're going to be evaluating more than three or four potential properties, I think it would be more worth your while to just get the purchase fee. Just uh, it's going to end up being more than a hundred or two hundred hours, and then it's just not worth it. Okay. Um, just a couple of uh, random questions I have. Yep. Um, when I purchased my my last house, um, one of the things that I've done or always did when I did purchase a property was uh, bring a pay for a an inspector to check out the property. Is, yep. is, is license, like where I'm from, there are licensed building inspectors who right. do, do these sort of things. Do they do that in Japan? Because I have not come across that. Um, they do that for houses more than for condo units. For condo units, you would usually go off the building's renovation history. And the owner would let you know what they did with the interior and you would be able to inspect it. Um, and I mean, you'd sort of know, right? Like if they haven't done any major plumbing in the last 10 or 20 years, you know that you're going to be up for that sooner rather than later. Um, but you could definitely bring in an inspector. I mean, it's just a matter of whether you're going to have enough time to run all the inspections you want before the property is sold to anyone else. That's the thing. Because again, the, the market moves very quickly. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, and one, it's like probably a strange question, but I have seen a couple of listings that seem sort of attractive, and then two times I noticed that it said, uh, from the balcony or from this window, you can see the cemetery, so make sure that that's okay with you, at least through the Google Translate, that's yeah. what it said. Um, is, that a, is that a significant issue? Because uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't bother me, because it's usually a green space, or the case that I was looking at, it was, uh, you know, the big, uh, somewhat famous, I can't remember what they called, Aoyama Cemetery. It's this big, huge green space in central Tokyo. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, is, is that an, do a lot of people not 
like that sort of thing in Japan? Um, the older generation, yeah, it could be a bit harder to sell with that. That's the only thing. So down the track, if you want to offload the property, it might be a bit more difficult to sell. Um, but you can always just try to target foreign buyers. They don't care much usually. Uh, but it, it, it does minimize um, or at least reduce your potential buyer pool, yes. Okay. Mm. All right. Um, and uh, something occurred to me about the when you do your due diligence or when you would do your due diligence on a building, um, is the number of uh, sort of renters versus owner-occupiers something that you look in? Is that a... I've, I've heard that if there are investment buildings where it's all renters in there and I want to have a holiday home in there, that sometimes the upkeep isn't as nice as uh, when a building is filled with owner-occupiers. Is that true? Or is it is true, but that's not going to be something that you'll need to trouble yourself with because the types of properties that you're looking with are always going to be in primarily owner-occupier buildings. Um, that might be a case if you're borderline size-wise, like say if the entire building is um, 2DK properties, for example, or you know something that's under 50 square meters but over 25, then that might be a mixed bag kind of thing. But anything below that is going to be primarily investment and anything above that is going to be primarily owner-occupier. So uh, you're looking at things that are three bedrooms and about 80, 90 square, right? That one... I mean, that's what made that one from 1962 quite attractive because it was very large. I'm looking for a 2LDK. Two, 2LDK two at so, what, what size approximately? Um, probably mid-60s and up. So square meters, like 65 square meters and up. It's going to be pretty rare to have uh, investor owners for those kinds of properties. Uh, they usually focus on the smaller ones. Okay. Yeah. I have no experience, like, you know, obviously there's buildings everywhere in Tokyo, but I have no idea if, there's, if it's a mix of renters and owner-occupiers or how these things work. But well, for management, like to see if the building is being well-managed, really all you need to do is look at pictures. And it's pretty obvious from the exterior and the lobby and the area just around the entrance, it's pretty obvious if the building is being well-kept or not. So that's usually not a huge issue. It's one of the things that stood out on that old building that I sent you. There's lots of interior shots. There's very little about the common. Yes. <laughs> well, that's, common that's because it's a very old building. There's only so much that you can do to keep it well-maintained at this age. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, that's uh, a little list here. Uh, yeah. I think that's... Uh, Pretty much everything covered in my my questions. Um, okay, great. Any other advice or uh, that you might give me for someone in my situation, or anything I, I should know or consider in terms of jumping into? Prop I don't even like to say property investment, but uh, ownership of a little holiday uh, property from. Yes, so that, that's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, um, there's plenty of, invest, uh, of advice that I would give investors. Um, yeah. But when you're looking for a holiday home, I mean, the most important thing is that you're happy with it. It's an emotional decision more than an economic one. Yeah. So, I mean, just find a place that looks nice for you in an area that you want or find a list of places that you'd consider in areas that you like. 
And then we can dig into each of them individually and find out which is the better deal if they're all, um, if they're all the same to you. Um, right. But the top criteria is always going to be somewhere that you're comfortable staying. So I'd go off that as a start. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Sounds good. All right. Um, I, as I, I can't remember if I put it in an email to you previously, but uh, because it is a holiday home that we have to kind of fall in love with, yep. uh, I'm not going to get really serious about this until I can actually visit Japan and see some of these properties with my own eyes. So yeah. uh, I am serious, but uh, it's probably going to be a little while until yeah. I, I get serious with you again. Hopefully uh, a year or two and not seven or eight, but we'll see how we go. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed that it's yeah. uh, just a few more months. How are, things, uh, how are things there, by the way? Are you, get, are you feeling the brunt of the virus there? No, it's actually been handled very, very well. The testing here is uh, like extremely high per capita. Yeah. They do a lot of testing, so they've sort of kept it under control. And because... It's a tourist destination. The the government has sort of taken over or sequestered a, a whole ton of uh, hotels that they you get sick, you get put into a hotel. Basically. Excellent, excellent. Or if you test, if you test positive, uh, so they've they've managed it. Uh, I think they've managed it quite well. I mean, yeah. Good stuff. So uh, you might be you might be in our travel corridor, or travel bubble when they open up again. We'll see how we go. That would be nice. It's just that we're kind of an outliner, like the the country next door, the countries around here are doing quite poorly. Yeah. Uh, relative numbers are pretty horrible in uh, Oman and Qatar and Iran, um, but the UAE is handling. It seems to be handling it quite well. So I mean, every, everything is completely. We did have a significant lockdown where you literally had to get a. Uh, uh, like a, it was quite simple. It was through text, but you had to apply just to be able to go out to do groceries and yeah. things like that. It's fairly instantaneous, but you could only do it three, you know, three every three days. Okay, it was yeah. a couple of times. Um, but now you have to wear a mask if you're outside or in public, public places. But basically, there's no everything is open. Cinemas, restaurants, cafes, everything is open. You just need to wear a mask if you're in public. Yeah, same here. I'm not going there, though. <laughs> I'm steering clear of any. I've done a few lunches with friends, but that's about it. I mean, I think I'm like you. I, I have not been. Uh, lots of people apparently do, but I have not been to a restaurant yet or a cafe. Uh, and I still only go, you know, grocery shopping uh, a couple of times a week. And yeah. My wife works from home and I stay at home, so. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed. Like you said, I hope we can see you uh, sooner rather than later. So there you have it. Plenty of useful info there. And I'm sure many of our listeners who are tuning in and in a similar situation, hopefully found some value in it too. Um, for me, the main takeaway here, if you haven't noticed, and I hope this buyer gets it too, would be do not purchase anything in a building that's 40 years old or getting close to that age. So seriously, folks, as attractive as these deals may seem, and I know that they are in many other countries, this is usually not the case here, or at least it's very rarely the case here. So if you need to compromise, 
compromise on the budget, on the size, on the location, not on the age. Do yourselves a huge favor because these older buildings are going to end up costing you far more in the long run, especially recently uh, with the recently announced new legislation. We're going to link to this episode again in the show notes. And these older buildings at the moment, at least, are simply not worth it. So that's it from us for today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, please do share it with your networks, put out the good word about the podcast, and beyond sharing, the best way to do this is to simply give us a bit of love on the iTunes store or Spotify, a star rating or a short review will really make our day here and will help us reach more and more people who could potentially benefit from our content, so we would really appreciate it. Also, your comments, as always, questions, general opinions, more than welcome to, of course, feel free to leave them in the comments section of wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you on any channel you feel comfortable on. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, from all of us here at NTI, we wish you, as always, a great day or night ahead. Get us good.